0: Working our way through, and we're in working our way into the middle of chapter two. By way of review, chapter one, Paul opened with words of rejoicing and encouragement. He gave thanks for the fact that the gospel had gone forth into the Lycus Valley, where Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, those three cities were. And he rejoiced because the gospel worked when Epaphras took the good news of Jesus Christ there. It bore fruit and increased. It caused growth in the lives of people there. And so Paul began with great rejoicing. And then remember that that very same gospel that produces rejoicing also places you in a category of people who need great prayer. And so Paul reached uh, out in prayer here. He, he, He identified the things that he was praying for. He said that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, And uh, that they would be filled with all um, wisdom and spiritual understanding. And there were four characteristics then of a life of someone who walks in this way. Uh, That they walk fully pleasing with God, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, and they give thanks to the Father. Then, and probably more importantly for our mindset this morning... Paul transitioned in chapter 1 to give this high Christology. Remember this song of Christ where he looked back and he said that Christ is the author, he's the agent of creation, and he looked at the present, that God is the sustainer of creation, and he looked forward, that God is the great object of creation as well. All of those find their place in Christology, in the person of Jesus. And that... Produced benefits that the Colossian church has already experienced, right? It's the gospel benefits. We talked about that two weeks ago. This reconciliation that we once were enemies, and now, through the death of Christ, we have been made friends of God. Last week, we looked at then Paul's role in mediating those blessings. How does the apostle, and then by extension, the pastor, how do they fit into this Uh, This story. And we saw last week that they are proclaimers of this great mystery, the mystery that was a great treasure that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so apostles and then now pastors preach, preach Christ. Now this morning, there is a shift, a pretty strong one, to a direct address to the Colossians. We're moving really from All of this introductory material, rejoicing in prayer and even doctrinal truths about Christ, now to say in this situation, in the lives of the Colossian Christians, how does this matter? Why does this matter? In what way are these things going to uh, manifest themselves? And so he directly addresses the Colossian church as to how they should respond. And we saw that, we'll reread that here now, verses 4-4. Through 10, the text for this morning, I know we read a a, a broader portion earlier, so we will reread just to, to focus our attention here. He says, now this I say, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For even though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And beware, lest anyone cheat you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Because in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. So the proposition from Paul this morning is that in your walk towards spiritual maturity, watch out for teaching that is not According to Christ, and continue walking in the fullness of Christ and His gospel. In your walk towards spiritual maturity, watch out for teaching that is not according to Christ, and continue walking in the fullness of Christ and His gospel. The way that Paul or he formats the text this morning is that there are really two cycles. Of this idea so in four through seven which is what's on the screen you have a warning right here i don't want you to be deceived and then there's an aside that we'll look at first and then there is this instruction toward what they should do therefore go ahead and walk continue in christ you'll see that same pattern emerge here beware right a warning be on guard lest this happen and then he ends with a recommendation toward the fullness of Christ, once again. So it's really kind of two um, cycles. And what we'll do is we'll just take the two themes in the two cycles and address them together. So the A, uh, beware, and then the B, walk in Christ. Now, before we do that, there's kind of this unspoken question that Paul answers in verse five. Is it really appropriate for Paul to issue such warnings and encouragements? After all, he's not even been to Colossae, Remember? He's writing to these people that he's never seen face to face. So what gives him the right? You know, what, what is it that, that prompts him to write these things? Um, everything that he knows about the Colossians is dependent upon what Epaphras has told him. So you could sense perhaps a tendency or, or a possibility at least of this negative reaction with like, well, I get that it's this letter, but he's never even been here. He doesn't know what the teachers are saying. He doesn't know what Epaphras has said. He doesn't know who I am. And Paul makes it his business for two reasons. One, there's this implicit um, uh, argument for the fact that this is his business from last week—that he is an apostle. This has been God's duty that he has been that he has given to Paul. So he has this responsibility to go um, in wide regions and to preach, and he has this goal that every man is going to be—he is going to be able to present mature in Christ. But then explicitly. Verse 5 gives us this reason. He says, I may not be with you in body. I'm absent in the flesh. However, I am with you in spirit. So he argues for his presence. The fact that he is there with them, that he does know them. He does know their story. He does know their danger. And he does know the gospel. He knows the solution. So, as we saw last week, you know, his purpose is to bring God glory by being used as a servant in the body of Christ, the church. So, he's continuing to serve in this regard, and in his absence, we know as well from last week, he certainly was present with them in prayer. He worked out his entire life for their sake in prayer. He worked diligently. He was disciplined. It took great energy and effort and even a toll on his own body that He served them in prayer, weaving His Spirit with their own, even though no words, perhaps before this moment, were exchanged between them. And then I think in the very writing of this letter, the fact that Colossians is written to Colossae, to these saints, Paul has sent his own Spirit to be with them. Paul is there. And he's making these strong Christological arguments to them as though he were there. And because of the nature of Scripture, not only is Paul there, but the very Spirit of God is there. So he is with them in spirit. When the letter arrives, the apostle arrives, and even the Spirit of God arrives. And then he describes his disposition a little bit. What's the tone of this letter? Well, he is rejoicing and seeing their good order, and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. So once again, similar to chapter 1, we see Paul's tremendous excitement for the progress of the gospel in the Lycus Valley. And this phrase is a helpful phrase because it sets the tone for the warning that follows. These two participles, rejoicing and seeing. Uh, they're, they're functioning in this it's a literary device called a hendiadys. And so they're parallel words, but two words are often brought together to communicate one idea. So he's not rejoicing and seeing their good order. That's why it's translated this way, that he's rejoicing in seeing their establishment in the faith. Now, he's, it's, it's a little bit amusing because he's still continuing to describe, hey, I'm there. <laughs> like, I saw your good order. No, he didn't. He heard about it from Epaphras, but he says it's as good as seen. Right. It's I know who you are. I know what the business of the gospel is, and so I'm here with you to speak with authority about the danger and about the solution that are in front of them. So he's rejoicing to see two things: good order and steadfastness. Steadfastness. Um, These two. Have, uh, they're off. It's, easy, it's easy preaching at least. I, I'm not sure if they're intended. These two, though, are often used as military metaphor or they're used in military context. So he may be sort of setting up this stage as, as a battlefield before them. And he says, I know some things about you as you walk into this danger. And he says, beware lest you be taken away. So as you walk into this danger, I'm rejoicing because you are ordered. You have... A good formation, good tactics. It's set up well, and it's not only that it's set up well, but it is strong. It is solid, almost like the front of the line, that it is impenetrable. It's, it's going to withstand maybe the fiery darts of Satan, okay? So, he's setting uh, perhaps up this military scene. Um, regardless of whether that's his intent, he certainly is saying, I'm, I'm thankful that you are set up well for the fight that is in front of you. Now, the question might come, why then warn them if they're orderly and they're strong? Why do they need a word of caution? It's because the threat is looming, because the threat is mounting. It is growing against them. Epaphras has left there, and he's gone to Paul because he's as their shepherd, he's identified a spiritual threat. He's gone to seek the help of the apostle and he knows that dangerous days are ahead. So Paul's words here are less a criticism of the Colossians, like how dare you integrate other things into your faith. And he's not coming down and condemning them. He's actually saying, no, you haven't received the false teaching. You're established in the faith, but be on guard against it. It's not unlike Parenting, you know that we would te- how we would teach a child to cross the road. Step here, look this way, look that way, look this way again. Now we cross. Do you do that because they're so set on running in the street? No, you do that because the street is dangerous, right? So Paul's doing that here. He's simply teaching. He's instructing. One of the things that can happen when there's a strong warning text is that we just immediately get defensive. Right, like that, well, I know, I know, I'm aware. I've seen it. I, I, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm set up. It's okay, you know. And he's saying, "Don't do that." He's just receive the warning. Um, receive the warning from the apostle. Observe here that I mean, it means that there is danger around us, and it would be wise. We would be wise to hear and to observe instruction. No need to be defensive. Certainly, the need though to be aware. Okay, so that's kind of the, the introduction to the text before we get into the warning. Um, and then the encouragement to walk. So, let's seek the Lord's help at this point in prayer. Father, the text is laid before us today. Um, it is simple in its encouragement, and you know my heart that I feel even my explanation of it seems more simple still. Um, But I pray that the richness of the encouragement here, the practical theology that's in this text, would find rest in the heart of your people. Pray that your Spirit, who is with us, who is in each and every one of those who have been called to the gospel and have been regenerated, that he would do his work today. He would take this truth... Plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ and for the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're really going to make observations because we're taking the A and A together, the warning and then the B together. So our first word of warning is in verse 4. He says, This I say, meaning, everything could be everything in the letter that he's argued previously, but probably verses um, 2 and 3, uh, that, that our hearts would be encouraged, knit together in love, that we would attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that reality that all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge as preached by the apostles and pastors that reality is present in their lives in order to guard them against deception so there's this warning lest anyone let no one deceive you with persuasive words and then the second warning beware lest anyone cheat you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So, the warning is that we would be on guard. The warning is that we would have our heads on a swivel. And it's important for us as Christians to walk through this life with our eyes open. Vigilance alertness, real-time insight and discernment so that as we read and as we hear, as we make these observations, as people seek to persuade, we would have this immediate ability to process with a Christological lens that we would have confidence in either following or walking away from the teaching that's in front of us. This is not the time, this life is not the time, while we love it, for laziness, for spiritual sloth, for this demand that we would be able to be at ease. The stakes are too high at this present point. And the life of a Christian, as we saw very clearly in 1 and 2 Peter, but 1 Peter particularly, this life of a Christian is the life of an exile, of a pilgrim. And at the end of that book, he warned us, right, that Satan is out like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. The enemy is vigilant and hyperactive and vicious. And so we must be hyper aware and instructed in the truth of the faith. So that we would be able to identify error when it shows up. What is the instrument of the false teachers? What do they use to deceive us? It's helpful to know that when you know your enemy's weapons, because then you can respond accordingly, right? So the, the, what they're using is words, persuasive ones, they're deceiving with persuasive words, and they're deceiving with philosophy, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but particularly an empty, deceiving philosophy. So persuasive words and philosophies. We should realize as believers that ideas are very powerful that words are very powerful, that they communicate. And to embrace an ideology and a solution for life is something that a Christian must do with extraordinary care. Embracing an ideology or a solution for life is something that we must do with great care. I'll learn someday Bring a tissue up here. So the issue here is not that we have a philosophy, right? The issue is not philosophy itself or in, as in its root idea, the love of wisdom. That's not, it's not a wicked thing. Uh, it's not even necessarily a dangerous thing. It's simply stating that there are ideas and that there are systems of thought and systems of belief, So he's going to qualify it in a moment. What's the nature of their words, the nature of their philosophies? But just keep in mind that the issue is not that we have a philosophy or a series of thoughts or even motivations or that we pursue the answers to deep questions, as might be a, a, a brief way of thinking of a philosophy, right? Answering a deep question. The problem here is the source and the substance of those philosophies, of those ideas, Countless of them that are in our lives, that are all around us, and they they are appealing and they're persuasive ways of thinking to which you will be encouraged to subscribe. So what is the nature of the dangerous kind of ideas? How do we begin to discern between good ones and bad ones if that's what we need as believers walking in this life? He describes the nature of them with three phrases. These all begin with the same word, kata in Greek, according to, according to. So there's three things he's describing here. That the source and the substance of the ideas that will be perhaps even present inside a local assembly, and certainly outside the local assembly, that they are according to the tradition of men. Or according to human traditions, human ideas, so therein we find the source. <laughs> the source is that someone thought of this, someone thought of this, and it was a good idea okay then secondly, in uh, it, perhaps building in substance in all three of these, the tradition of men, then, according to the basic principles of the word of the world now this is it 's a very fascinating phrase it 's one that comes up here, and then it comes up at the end of. Uh, chapter 2. I'm trying to, uh, in verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. So, what is that basic? What are, what are those basic principles? What does that mean? And there's, there's kind of, uh, well, we'll just say two options on the table. There's more than that. We'll put two on the table, and then I, it's, I, I think one leads to the other. So, most commonly, when we think of the basic principles, what Paul at, in this time, what they're referring to is. Actually, the foundational elements of the world. So, gets weird for a second. But think like earth, fire, rock, water. Like that; those are the foundational elements of our world. That's the way that the word is. The, the word is most commonly used. And the second idea is that these are spiritual beings, uh, foundational spiritual beings. We've talked previously about the powers. And that's how Paul tends to refer to them in Colossians, thats that, that they're authorities and powers that God had created back in chapter 1, 15 through 20, and then at the end of chapter 2, or in the middle of chapter 2 that, next week, actually, that he's going to have complete dominance over. Okay, so these, power, these spiritual beings, perhaps like hierarchies of angels uh, or demons, that, they are, that they're ruling and they're guiding and they're governing. Um, and so he says that the philosophies are according to them. So those are kind of the two ideas. The problem with the second one is that it's a very uncommon, if not later, way to understand this word. Okay? But if you think of the two together, and you think particularly of, of animism, or you think of uh, other false faiths, they're not really unrelated, are they? That the basic elements of the world, as humans observe them, particularly, let's just say, the word, let's use pagans as a category, as, as pagans would observe the natural elements, these foundational elements of the world. What happens? Out of those, you form idols. Not just out of them substantively, but also as the object of your worship. Worshiping perhaps the sun and the moon, or you worship the God of the water, the God of the air, the skies. You know, like there's a lot of parallels between what someone worships and these foundational elements of the world. It's not unlike the other place to look. Perhaps you would just jot this down and look this up later as a cross reference. The other, the other place that Paul uses this is in Galatians as a part of his argument there. In verses 4 and verse 9, he argues concerning these basic principles. So I think that, that how we are intended to understand it is that we're moving in these three ideas, that it's according to the tradition of men who are observing these natural elements and moving in these natural elements to worship, that they are going, according to the faith, backwards, right? They're, they're reversing their worship. They've been brought to Christ and he's saying don't follow anything that takes you back into this old way of worship. Anything that takes you back Back towards not observing Christ as preeminent. Okay, so this tradition of men, the basic principles of the world, this is the source and the substance. It's very human and full of human ideas of worship, okay? And then the third phrase, probably most significantly and stingingly condemning of all, is that these ideas are not according to Christ. So these ideas do not depend on, they are not sourced in, they do not contain the substance of the true and the living Christ. Okay, So this is the truest disarming uh, statement from the Christian perspective, from Paul's perspective. If Christ is divine son, and he is the creator and the reconciler of all things, as he's made the argument in Colossians, if he is the maker of all other authorities, then any Teaching that in any way detracts from the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Christ is wrong and ultimately ineffective. It doesn't work, it doesn't accomplish its purpose. So the people here in apparently in the assembly, they're not denying Christ's central role or even his role in redemption, but they suggest that supplementing him with these other ideas for spiritual benefit is a wise thing to do. It's a prudent thing to do. And what ends up happening then is you have subtraction by addition, right? In seeking to supply Christ with more in order to help him out, in order to aid his, him in growing you. Perhaps it's not happening fast enough. Perhaps it's not happening in the area that you would like to be grown in. And so you look this other way and you seek to supplement. It says, and so doing, you're detracting from the sufficiency of Christ to accomplish what he said that he will accomplish. And that takes us to this um, idea that's stated in, the, in verse 4, uh, that you're deceived. That's not actually where I was intending to go. That, uh, oh, right here. Through philosophy and empty deceit in verse 8. So, the result is that you have chased a hollow lie. You have embraced a hollow lie into a part of your maturation, spiritually speaking. This, this something that has presented itself as substantive, but in the, at the end of the day, it holds nothing. It's devoid of, of spiritual, moral, intellectual value. So, it's, what that was contrasted with is the true… Uh, these are words he's used in chapter 1, right? The true and the reliable in chapter 1, 5 a gospel which is powerfully transforming in verse 6, and it's very valuable. Verse 23, we saw that this mystery of Christ revealed is highly to be treasured. It's very substantive. And he's used this word, this idea of fullness all throughout, that there's nothing that it lacks. So he's developing the argument here. If we are to chase these ideas, if we are to syncretize our faith, then what we're left with is emptiness, these words seduce believers away from the simplicity of faith in Christ. Received, we're, we're tricked, we're lied to. That's a wonderful feeling, right? Ultimately being let down when you thought you were entering something substantive and it gave out from underneath you. This may be here that the metaphor is being built and, and, and carried on, that we're being cheated. I'm not, I'm not quite sure here why New King James translates it cheat. This is a hapax, which means it's only used one time. This word is only used one time in the New Testament. But nearly every other translation uh, sort of adopts the, the sense that, it's, that you are being carried away, that you have become the object of desire. And this false idea walked in, took you with it, away from Christ. So you're, even in the military idea that you have become uh, the plunder of this raid, it it walked into the church, it saw vulnerable people, and it gave this presentation of fullness, and some people listened and were drawn away, and it took them, right? So don't be taken away, be on guard, be aware, lest you be taken away. Because there are fundamentally anti-Christian forms of teaching all around us. Attempting, really, to fill every quiet moment of our life. (laughs) Their intention is to snatch you away as their prize, to plunder. You are the plunder that they pillaged. You remember that Christ's value from last week is inestimable, right? That you cannot calculate it, that he is the greatest treasure. If you can be deceived into believing the false teacher's appraisal of Christ... then you are vulnerable because you have diminished your belief in his value. You're vulnerable to believing that someone or something else possesses greater or beneficial present and future value, okay? So that's the danger. What do we do in order to guard against this danger? And that's, well, verses 9 and 10, and then we'll look back at 6 and 7. So 9 and 10, these are ideas that have already been present in Colossians. We looked at them Uh, At length in, in verses 15 through 20. Our defense is the fullness of Christ and our fullness in Him. That's our defense. The fullness of Christ and our fullness in Him. This elaborates on the not according to Christ phrase by detailing the reverse side. That in Christ and in Christ alone is found the fullness of God. Divinity is not distributed among a hierarchy of spiritual powers that then kind of filters down, makes its way down to humanity. The reality is far greater than that, that all the complete and the full uh, essence and nature of God is present in the person of Jesus Christ so it's all in one human you see it present before us as we know from the old testament and we've looked at our study in genesis the presence of god with his people is of monumentary monument mm, monumental monumental value so monumental monumental proportions that he's with them is everything If he's with them, then they go forward, and there's fullness, and there's shalom, and there's peace and and abundance. If he's not with them, then there's lack and need, uh, and they ultimately have nothing. And so here, what Paul does is he picks up on this imagery of presence, and he says, in Jesus, God is fully present. And so, when Christ is born in his incarnation, that's the meaning of Emmanuel, right? That God became made visible, he became a human being. So we don't need some sort of a special vision in order to see him. We don't need some sort of special experience in order to gain access to him. The emphasis on his body, that, it, that the Godhead dwells in him bodily, underscores his accessibility. That he is present. That he is near to us. We can come to him. He is a historical person. So we don't have to pursue these other dreams and ideas and special experiences. So He is everything that is divine. And the immediate implication is that it is in our union with Him that we then are completely made full. That if if I am in the fully divine one, then I lack nothing. I need nothing else. You know, it's like asking for a thousand when you've been given 10 billion. It, it, that, that doesn't make sense. You, need, you don't need it. So Christians, by our union, we participate in, in his life. Without him, we would be incomplete. Without, without him, we are unable to experience the full intent of life as a human. But, united with Him, incorporated into Him, we are joined together in this living bond with the fullness of God. We are united with the fullness of God. Here's a commentator's quote. It says, All that human beings can know or experience of God is found in Christ. And so, Christians, simply by virtue of being Christians have access to all this knowledge and experience. And if that is true, then that would cause this supreme disinterest in other things, wouldn't it? If you have been completely and fully satisfied in your spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ, then no know what other voice carries even any measure of fulfillment. It can look away without feeling guilty, without feeling, you know, it's like the salesman at the door. You're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Just go. Don't even start. Because if you start, you're not gonna stop. Right? And so we we have disinterest in any other thing. How do we how do we walk forward in this? And he describes our habit, and this is verses six and seven. If we have received him, then in the same way that we have received him, we simply continue. We simply continue walking in Christ. It's a a very plain formula, which is one of the reasons that so many other voices are attractive, because they're more complex, and they're more intricate, and they have more interesting language, and bigger, you know, not bigger promises, but bigger immediate promises maybe, right? So he says, no, there is this idea in verses six and seven of the tradition that what Paul is doing is he's simply handing down something that was handed to him by God himself. And he's handing it to these local assemblies, particularly to elders in the local assemblies. And he gives it to them to do what? To do the exact same thing, to continue the tradition of Christ. I know that that word has a lot of negative connotations today, right? Buck the tradition, think outside the box, do new things. But the tradition of Jesus, orthodoxy, truth, that the gospel is what it has been for thousands of years, that is something to hold on to. That is not something to buck. And so the fact that we've received it is, is the very argument for the, sake that for, uh, for the reason that we should move forward in it. We walk in what we've already received. He gives four, this, this is very parallel to chapter one. You remember in the, in the prayer, said they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they would walk worthy. And then he gave four descriptors. I could have put all four of the previous ones up and and compared them to these four, but they're very similar. So he says, as you continue walking, here's what the quality of your walk is. Here are some characteristics. And he gives four uh, parallel descriptors, okay? So this is rooted, built up, established, and abounding. So rooted, That begins us in this agriculture imagery, the fact that we have been planted, that our roots go down deep into Christ. This is very sort of origin or beginning language, right? That we're down. Um, And then he moves right away to a building imagery or an architectural imagery that were then built up. So you have probably uh, this, this foundational language, the receiving of the tradition, your roots going down deep in Christ, and now the building of the structure on top of it. Uh, Peter might say that we're being built up as living stones together, and you know, also you have Christ building uh, his, his building, which is the church. So we're rooted in Him, and we're built up in Him, and then he goes uh, to more of a marketplace imagery. This established describes the confidence that we would have, the surety of a deal, like shaking hands on something. It's absolutely going to take place. So you have agriculture, and you have architecture, and then you have commerce or industry. All of these images come together, and he says, this is all your life, your abundant life in the faith. The interesting thing about these first three is that they're all passive, so they're all being done to you. You are, a good translation would be being rooted, being built up, being established in the faith. And that begins to build this argument for something he'll make quite strongly at the end uh, in verse 19. He says, and not, uh, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So who's doing the spiritual growth in your life? Did God save you so that then you can grow you? No. God saved you, and a part of that salvation is His growing of you moving toward glorification. So he's accomplishing this. He is rooting you, building you up, establishing you in the faith. There's that statement of of, uh, tradition again, as you have been taught. So we've already heard, I mean, isn't this true? You all have heard many times that Christ is sufficient. We've all heard many times that our souls are anchored and built in him. We have confidence in him alone. And sometimes the fact of the reiteration can cause something to lose its effect. <laughs> we just become, it looks more common, it looks more dull. And I encourage you that in each passage, in every text of Scripture, there's times that even as pastors, we'd approach a text and it looks like, well, it looks like we're saying the same thing this week, right? And that's true and not true. We say the same thing, but every part of Scripture brings to it another shade, a new a new. Uh, image another picture of bright colors and it just it it becomes this very precious treasure that christ is as we examine him in all of his perspectives you might say so this is what we do and, and we're rooted we're built up and established and the only active one is he says abound in thanksgiving he says be thankful and if we are to truly or as we truly remember the gospel what else could we be as we reflect on Christ, well, how else could we respond but gratitude, even through the storms of life, even through what probably this, I think we talked about it before, but this grand earthquake even that's about to hit Colossae and ruin all of their homes and ruin this entire city and bring it to ruin. Even in that, God is, God is faithful. They're still, they can still abound with thanksgiving. They still have a sure hope, a sure promise of the future. None of our circumstances can change the work of God in us, and so we respond with an abundance of thanksgiving. I wanted to spend a few minutes in in pausing in our application this morning, Um, maybe developing it a little bit more thoroughly than I might normally But as we think about how we watch, how we're on guard, how we beware, if the ideas that are being presented to us are persuasive and deceptive, then we shouldn't expect them to be obvious. It's often been said that the most dangerous lies are ones with partial truths, right? They're also often the most difficult to refute because it sounds like you're being really picky. Sounds like you're just nitpicking at something like, well, you didn't quite say it the right way. This often happens in theology, right? People going to death over a word. And there is a reason for that, right? It might depend on if it's a good fight or not, depending on the word. But if the word is right, you better believe we'll go to the death for it. Because these ideas in their presentation, they're not saying, yeah, throw Christ away, come with me instead. Like, it's too easy. It's too obvious. They're nuanced. So, a few maybe practical principles. If something seems off, it probably is. If something sounds like, that doesn't quite sound right, doctrinally. It doesn't quite sound like the tradition that I've received it probably is off. You probably can turn it off. You don't need to listen to it. I would also encourage, particularly today, um, awareness, beware of promises of growth, promises of success, promises of results. Those are things, remember, that who accomplishes? God accomplishes growth. And he's promised that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. You don't need another teacher to promise you growth in another way. I would beware sensational language. Saying very simple things in complex ways. The text is simple. The truth is simple. It's beautiful. And we can hopefully have a measure of oration, right? but we don't need people telling us in all sorts of bright and brilliant ways the ways that we can grow sensational language is not generally christological and then i would say beware people who promote themselves as teachers there aren't very many teachers that you need in your life we don't need we don't need a thousand voices And remember that the deception is not maybe that they deny Christ. It's it's probably far more nuanced than that. So have this extraordinary caution in receiving instruction and and, uh, building habits of life and ways of thinking around the ideologies of somebody else, a voice, an instructor. So to take that one step further, um, like as an example, YouTube. It's a great way to learn a new hobby. It's a great way to learn how to fix your car. It's a great way to learn how to garden, right? All those things. It's a dangerous place to be instructed in how to live. It's a dangerous place to receive promises of growth and satisfaction and fulfillment. It's a dangerous place. And uh, other places like it would be books. It's basically new books, right? New, short, tiny books. You can read uh, a thousand at a time. Um, so books are a great place to learn. Um, but beware. Ha- have your, uh, have, read with your mind filtering Christologically, particularly for parents with, with kids in school or those that are older and going to university. Those are dangerous places to receive instruction for the way that you should live, for the way that you should think, to be formed by voices that are primarily in the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ, be on guard. And then on the other side, the walk. So if that's our warning, then on the walk side. If we remember Paul's argument, what he did last week, his apostolic role, What was it that he was about? He was about two things, preaching and prayer. And he says, we preach Christ and in him fullness. In him we present every man mature. So the preaching of the revealed mystery, the preaching of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's primary means of the protection and the growth of his body, which is the church. That's his primary means. And it's not that Paul was an incredible preacher or a teacher. It's not that Matt or myself are any sort of incredible teacher. Remember, it's the tradition. It's the faith. It's the truth about Christ passed down, preached audibly for people to hear. Therein, we have protection against false ideas. And so, if that is true... How should we approach Sunday morning? How should we, as a family, think about a sermon? Pretty robustly, I would say, right? Even if, even if I'm boring, even if it's not said the best, even if I make mistakes, even if I stuttered, even if whatever, and I will. What's being said, the word being proclaimed, this is your means of defense, And so, as we work through a book, prepare for that. We know generally where we're going. We have a pretty consistent habit of movement through a book. So prepare your heart for the next one. As you sit down, clock in to a sermon. Be ready to work one more hour in the week. And do, like, be vigilant and have your ears open to what God is saying in, in, in the text. So don't, and then this is sort of it's it these other ideas allure to us because it's partially what we want. So if we should beware sensational language, then don't necessarily expect a sermon to be sensational. Expect it to be Christological. Expect it to be Jesus focused. That's better than sensational language or Seven tricks toward this, or three ways you can be sure that that, okay. So prepare, work hard in listening, and trust the process. Then that God is going to build you. He he is going to root you. He is going to build you. He's going to establish you confidently in the faith. And this is his primary means: is the preaching of the word of God. So, contrary to popular belief, theology is practical. <laughs> theology has a very practical purpose if nothing else in this text we discover that theology the truth protects us from deceptive ideas so in your walk towards spiritual maturity watch out for teaching that is not in accord with christ and continue walking in the fullness of christ and His gospel